Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by Chase Zapadal, Chief Growth Officer at Veda Data. Like me, Chase has been all around the healthcare ecosystem over the past two decades. He's had a variety of roles at places like Walter Clore Health, Mercer, and Wallframe, before his current role at Veda. And unlike me, Chase has a clinical background. He's a trained and certified pharmacist, which is how he started his career. We'll cover Chase's experience as a pharmacist later in the podcast, but the reason that I asked Chase to join me today is because he is also an expert in healthcare data. And for a podcast focused on data-driven conversations around healthcare, Chase is a bit of a home run guest, if you will. So Chase, welcome to Definitively Speaking. Thank you, Justin. Very excited to be here. So Chase, data is a big topic. I mean, you can literally talk about anything. There's clinical data, operational data, financial data, affiliation data, reference data, patient data, provider data, system data. I could keep going, but for the sake of our listeners, I'll stop. How do you begin to make sense of all that data? Is any one form of it more important than the other in the healthcare ecosystem? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, just to preface all this with, uh, you mentioned I'm a pharmacist, but I'm not a data scientist. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> just level set on this. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many types of data and, you know, it's all got its importance, right? And it all helps us, you know, hopefully make better decisions and drive better outcomes. So uh, while it's vast, um, you know, there's expertise in, in various areas. And I think that's what's critical to, uh, to us being able to utilize data effectively. Is any one type of data more important in the healthcare ecosystem, do you think about? Yeah, I mean, from, from my perspective, I don't know that it that it can be one or the other, right? I think that, you know, if you look at let's say financial data, that's important to the healthcare system. We have to make great financial decisions, right? If you look at outcomes data from clinical studies and whatnot, there's a lot of great data there, right? It, it's important too. So, so my thing is, uh, I don't think there's necessarily more important data. I think it's about making sure that we utilize the data we have in the most appropriate way. And that's ultimately what's going to drive, like I said, better decision-making. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's really hard to separate the financial data from the clinical data, from the operational data, because it is so interlocked. But, you know, to give our listeners a frame of reference here, according to the website, jdsuper.com, the healthcare sector generates more than 19 terabytes of clinical data alone each year. And that some doesn't even begin to consider the other forms of healthcare data that I just listen. I mean, 19 terabytes, I can't even begin to fathom that, Right. You know, I've always found, and I, th I know I'm far from unique in this insight, right, that there's a wide variety in the quality of data out there, right? You know, the old garbage in, garbage out. How do you measure quality of data? You know, one of the things that's exciting about Veda and a little bit of my background is, you know, we're really focused on the idea of scientific method. And, and so, you know, that when you think about that, that's really like, how do we systematically observe things, measure things, experiment, and ultimately, you know, modify our hypothesis that we're testing if we needed to, right? So, um, and like I said, that does align with kind of you know, my background as a pharmacist, you know, obviously a significant part of my education as fun as it sounds was, you know, how do you assess clinical information through statistical methods and ultimately hopefully making the best decisions to, to drive sound clinical decisions in that regard, right? So, so yeah, so that's, 
that's all well and good. But then we talk about just the sheer amount of data. An example, I think that's it's interesting, um, was just running across some stuff this weekend about the, like clinical trials, right? And that's a place that, you know, it's my pharmacy background. I spent a lot of time assessing clinical trials. Like, is this a good, a good to have observational studies? Is it a good randomized controlled trial? Like, what is this, right? the number of clinical trials on an annual basis has doubled just in the last 10 years. I mean, that's, that's pretty significant. And just, you know, that's just that much more data, which hopefully is leading to better decisions on, on the care of patients, right. And leading to better outcomes, but at the same time, that's just more uh, data that's out there to also possibly uh, make decisions diff- more difficult. Cause you see one say this has one thing and one says the other. So, so sometimes that, that amount of data is good. And sometimes it also could probably add to complexity of things. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that, that is amazing to see just the sheer amount of, of data that's, that's out there. Um, in general, the amount of data that's generated, while it can be overwhelming at times, there's times where it's actually can be useful as well. So, like, you know, if you think about why, you know, data in general is two forms, right? It's signal, which is hopefully the things that are proving what you're trying to test. And then it's usually noise, which are things that that are outside of what actually is proving your hypothesis. And, um, and that could be things as simple as somebody, you know, miskeyed something into a data set and it looks outside the random, it could be actually that your hypothesis is inaccurate and you need to adjust what you're, what you're trying to prove out. Now, that's where like when we talk about things like uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, like especially the machine learning side of things, data and more data can be fuel to help those, that machine learning improve its process and its modeling and what we're actually driving at. So I think those, those things are interesting. While there's a sheer amount of data, sometimes it can be overwhelming and we, we can have it not be useful. There's times where it actually does drive better, you know, better modeling as well. Is there a way to measure the quality of data? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the one thing that when we talk about, like from a data perspective, um, accuracy of data is key to us and high quality data, for example, is really um, important to us. And there are things, you know, obviously you want to validate your modeling is working how you would assume. And sometimes that actually requires you to do things like human intervention to, to validate the data. For instance, we, we're, we're maybe validating a set of phone numbers. Uh, you know, you can run models and go out and source a ton of data and try to make sure that those, those, those numbers are accurate, right? That they're, they're actually, you know, can be called, but you may actually want somebody to call and make sure somebody picks up on that other end that, to validate that. So there are various ways that, you know, you could obviously show that there's accuracy in that data. That's not always the case. And sometimes, you know, you can you you have to assume that, you know, your modeling is appropriate and you're going to have to make, you know, ultimately decisions on on where that goes. Why do you think there's so much inaccuracy in data? Um, I think it's it's around the number of sources. I think there's also the fact that uh, in today's world, data is produced at such a rapid pace. Um, I think timeliness um, is also a really big factor in this. So while data may have been accurate at one point in time, as you progress to the future, it may no longer be accurate and it's still out there. Right. And so I think that's one of the hardest things uh, from, you know, if we look at things like modeling is you have a, a certain time span of data. Right. And data does evolve over time. It's not static. It's very dynamic. And so in that regard, you really have to to kind of stay up with your modeling and constantly be processing that data to ensure you're picking up the appropriate signals, uh, if you will. So is old data bad? No, well, no, not necessarily, right? Um, so there's times where, you know, something could be um, accurate for a long period of time. So it's not always that old data is bad. It is, it does get to the point where it evolves over time and it can lead to noise in, in what you're trying to do. So I don't think, you know, old data doesn't there to mean bad data. So then how do you deal with the aging of data? 
from what we see is the fact that when you're you know utilizing things like machine learning and and building these models or artificial intelligence the that has to pick up on on that those nuances of how the data ages and what that means to the model and constantly being updated uh, those models to assess that right um i tell you a really good example we've been having a lot of conversations uh, we focus a lot on you know provider demographic information for example and we've been talking a lot about something like rural healthcare Rural healthcare is really difficult because there's oftentimes a scarcity of providers in those areas. And so if you were looking at data and, you know, a simple question, where does Dr. Smith practice at? Should be a fairly simple question. Right? You, you're very aware of this, right? That's not. It's a very difficult question, especially if Dr. Smith covers a large uh, geographic area, right, and has practice locations in a number of different, say, small rural towns. Um, what if Dr. Smith only shows up in one of those towns once every two or three months? So, you know, you really have to assess, you know, what is that utilization pattern over a time period, right? So that's in the case that, you know, older data may be good data, it may actually help you think about, you know, what is the appropriate uh, practice uh, habits of that particular provider, for example. So the Dr. Smith question is actually a really interesting one because let's just say Dr. Smith is affiliated with a large IDN as a hospital employed physician and Dr. Smith files his claims through the hospital that, you know, we're talking Texas and yeah. the claims for Dr. Smith go through Dallas, but Dr. Smith is at, you know, two hours east of Dallas, right? Yeah. How does that begin to work and how do you think about that? Yeah. And that's where, I mean, to, to, for, from our perspective, this is why deep expertise into what you are actually trying to model and measure is really important. So like, you know, somebody, you know, this is why I think it's really interesting when the idea of, you know, artificial intelligence or these systems that are just going to be, you know, computer brains, if you will, and learn all this. Well, they, they will maybe perhaps over time, but there does take a lot of deep uh, knowledge of the industry or what you're looking at and, and understanding those nuances of practice, you know, locations and, and how somebody like Dr. Smith actually practices. And I think without that knowledge and helping um, understand that through your modeling, uh, that in itself leads to inaccurate data because you you can process those data and maybe you would just throw out all the fact that Dr. Smith filed a claim that was two hours east of Dallas, right? And that wasn't accurate. Well, it was accurate because he went, goes out there once every two months to, to see a bunch of patients at that point in time. So I'm glad you brought up artificial intelligence because let, let's dive in a little bit of that, right? You know, part of me thinks artificial intelligence is just like, you know, data science, right? And it's algorithms. And, yep. you know, then you go to the flip side, you've got your artificial intelligence and you've got the Matrix and Terminator and all these great science fiction movies. And we're all working for our robot overlords. Right. Yeah. Is artificial intelligence really real when it comes to healthcare data? Are our computers getting smarter on their own? I don't know. At some point, maybe maybe we will all be working for a computer. I don't know that. But uh, I mean, my thing is it, funny. We have a tagline. At, uh, it's, it's technology helps people help people. I do feel human knowledge, deep expertise is really important to whatever we're utilizing. Maybe someday in the future, as we've all seen the sci-fi channels, it will evolve to something different. But right now I do feel, you know, the idea that those technologies are extremely important to help us process a large amount, as we just talked, a large amount of data very quickly, right? We couldn't do that without those, those type of, you know, computer systems, those, mo those models that are out there. However, I believe if you do that without that expertise and ability to assess and validate that those models are working correctly, 
it can lead to a lot of inaccurate information, right? We've, uh, you, you know, I mean, think about the, the bias of, of AI, right? Those type of things, they happen. If you leave those unchecked or if you program them in a specific way, they can have biases. And, and that's the same thing, you know, from a human validation perspective, we need to understand, like, are there biases in our models? Are we really assessing this appropriate way? So I think it's, 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 a, uh, it's a very interesting question and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll evolve into a time that uh, it'll lead us to an answer. <laughs> So, you know, the great holy grail of healthcare data is interoperability, right? I, yeah. I've been in this industry for a long time. Like I've always been talking about interoperability. Back when I was at GE Healthcare, way back when, I remember going to Hems, and every year at Hems, the engineering team would pull an all-nighter the night before the start of the show at the interoperability lab to prove that we could connect system A to system B. And they could share meaningful data. And that's meaningful use for all of our friends. I have a little bit of history in the industry here, right? Uh, you know, I feel like we've been talking about interoperability in healthcare as long as I can remember. And I'm sure long before that, long before I got here. Are we any closer to true interoperability with healthcare data today? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I think there's parts of the health industry that are further along and mature in that side of things and others that I think have, you know, more to go. You know, I, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, I grew, came up through the pharmacy world, right? And actually, when you think about pharmacy, I mean, you go way back, right? Um, you know, I think HIPAA, some of the, you know, the original kind of HIPAA laws really standardized a lot of what we were seeing during transaction processing. And pharmacy evolved pretty quickly in a standard transaction for real-time billing, for example. And, you know, that, that to me was a huge benefit for pharmacy in many regards, because you could do real-time billing, get responses back, you understood a copay, you understood all those things very quickly for the patient. There are things, though, that I think probably allowed that to happen. One, there was an organization called uh, NCPDP that was a standards organization within pharmacy. And I think, you know, been around from the 70s, you know, I believe, and then had really kind of taken a leading role in that. The other piece was there had been a, quite a bit of consolidation in it, and it happened through pharmacy. So you had fairly big entities, large pharmacy retail chains that were, were big players in that who adopted those standards. And one of the reasons I think is is for efficiency as well. So, you know, there was things that benefited that transaction being in place. On the medical billing side, it's taken a lot longer. You know, I think now, you know, if we think to like the high tech act, like there was other things that, you know, this is where the government and private sector coming together to really drive change is important. And it doesn't happen overnight. I think that's the other piece that's always really interesting is especially in a large uh, fragmented industry like healthcare. Uh, change is often slower than anybody would like. Um, it, it usually evolves. It doesn't just happen. Um, and uh, I think that's that's important to always understand. So I think there's been tremendous progress over the last 20 or 30 years in interoperability and standardization of, of things like you know claims transactions. I think that leads to ultimately better data at the end of the day and will continue to lead to better data. But, you know, you could argue that there are certain business inhibitors to interoperability, Right. Let's talk about the concept of leakage, right? So I'm working in a healthcare network and I'm part of the Beth Israel network here in the greater Boston area. And I want to keep all my patients in my system. I really don't want to share information, you know, with the hospital system in New York, even if they have the best specialty in the world, because I can treat them there, right? Yep. And so I have, frankly, economic disincentives yep. to promote interoperability. How can we ever overcome that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would say I, I always like to say there's 
perverse incentives everywhere a mm-hmm. little bit. Like there all are a number of things that are in this healthcare industry that are not ideal. There's no doubt. And I, I would agree. I mean, there's times where it doesn't make sense for one entity to want to share information with another entity. Um, I, again, I think that it's also a matter of, as we think about things like, you know, talk about quality, it's a very difficult thing. Like what is high quality, right? And, and when we're talking about quality, you know, obviously quality of data, but you know, the quality of the provider, for example, and what leads us to assess that quality of that provider in a way that's different from, you know, quality of a provider A versus B. Um, but I think if we can get to a point, to your point, where we get better standardization, actually analyze data and show that quality matters and drives outcomes and ultimately reduces, you know, things like the cost of care or improves, you know, the health of patients, hopefully those do lead to, to better decisions at the, you know, patient level that to drive to the best outcomes for that patient. Um, it's, it's, there's, if it was easy, I think we would have solved it. And I do think in our industry, um, as you know, the fragmentation does sometimes impede progress. Um, I think the overarching though, sentiment of the, of the healthcare industry is ultimately to go back and what's best for the patient. And hopefully we, we continuously do that. I'm not saying that always happens, but I, I think that's what we have to focus on is, is how do we drive the best outcomes for the patient. Yeah. You know, just for our, I'm going to take a quick aside here for our listeners and mention this is the second podcast in a row. We've talked about perverse incentives. Dr. Andrew Norton talked about perverse incentives in oncology on our last podcast. Kind of amazing <laughs> twice in a row here. But I got a follow up question for you here, Chase. I, I want to know, you know, is there a role for the government to legislate interoperability? You know, we've tried multiple, multiple times. Is that just never going to happen? Should it ever happen? It's a great question. I, I say I'm not a, a, a policy expert, um, you know, but am I. I do think <laughs> I do think you know, there's there's things that that have been put into policy that have driven, you know, ultimately changes. Right. Um, if you think about HIPAA, that really did drive a lot of standardization through the X-12 stuff, like right through like you talked about, you know, the, the NCPDP transactions. There were things that happened in there that, that did come out of that policy or uh, even in the high tech side, you know, that really did launch into what is now electronic medical records and utilize. I think before that, you're talking less than 10 percent of you know providers utilized electronic medical records. I think today it's well over well what 80 90 plus over 90 so like, yeah yeah so it's like that those are great you know opportunities that said policy has driven change i i mean i think that you know there's also a lot of discussion on things like you know what does a single payer system solve all our, our issues right um those are really larger questions than i'll ever be able to probably answer in my lifetime i think you know there's there's going to be trade-offs no matter what we do i also think you know the u.s healthcare system in general has also led to a lot of innovation and a lot of great things that have come out of the system. So again, I think change does not happen overnight. I think it evolves over time. I, you know, there may be a, a place where, you know, policy would be able to standardize and, and allow more interoperability and allow more sharing of data more freely. And, and I think that that will continue to be, you know, I'm, I'm sure, pushed and pulled on for years to come. <laughs> so you're not moving to Canada? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. All right. Just checking. Just checking. <laughs> uh, let's pivot a bit. Talk a little bit about your background as a pharmacist. How and, and frankly, why did you make a transition from being a pharmacist into the data and technology industry? Yeah, yeah. I came up as a pharmacist and worked in um, uh, community pharmacy. Uh, so that's kind of within the retail pharmacy world. A lot of it, you know, on the uh, large chain side, I actually did a residency with a large uh, retail pharmacy chain uh, right after school and happened to, you know, get involved as in the technology group at, at that particular moment. And they were, you know, were building a new pharmacy dispensing system. That got me in the technology side. I was working with developers every day, really thinking about, you know, how do we how do we use technology to, to drive, you know, 
um, the efficiency, effectiveness of, of pharmacists and clinical practice. And, um, and so that was kind of my start in the career. I, you know, I've always said, I never thought I would, you know, evolve from being a pharmacist to, to being in technology, um, and, um, software development, but I did, and then had the opportunity to go over and, um, work with a growth organization at Walters Kluwer Health, as you mentioned. So that was my first foray into to growth and um, business development. So, so yeah, I never thought that the, the career path would happen the way it did, but it's been really exciting and, and uh, a lot of great opportunities as I, as I advanced through my career. So, you know, I love asking people questions that they may or may not be qualified to answer, but hey, you're a pharmacist, so I'll ask you anyways, you know, what's your perspective on the state of pharmacy benefits today? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. You know, pharmacy benefit management has, uh, it's an interesting one. I think, uh, I think there's, you know, a lot of opportunities for disruption, honestly. I mean, if you look at the fact that you have three, really three um, large pharmacy benefit managers that control, you know, close 80% plus of the, of the overall, you know, uh, prescription volume is, is pretty, pretty significant. Right. And, all three of those are aligned with, you know, a health insurance company. So, you know, there's vertical integration there and one of them has a, a large retail pharmacy chain attached to it. So, you know, those are big entities. Those are, you know, large entities that are controlling a, a large uh, portion of the drug spend in the United States. And, you know, I think there's, there's opportunities to think about that differently. If you think about even the concept of things like uh, discount cards, you know, those are really bypassing that process of, of, you know, the pharmacy benefit management industry. And those have been around for a number of years. They've made inroads. And um, it, it's it's kind of interesting to think that those actually even exist, right? And if you look at who's using those, uh, I think some data I saw was, you know, 50% of those discount cards are utilized by people who don't have insurance. But that population in the United States from the uninsured has continued to shrink. I think we're down to, you know, maybe less than 10% or around 10% of people who don't have healthcare benefits today. So that's the shrunk. And I think I saw like 5% of, of insured people are using a discount card uh, in some way, shape or form. So that that's pretty significant amount of utilization. And there's a reason, I, you know, they can get just as good a pricing going through a discount card program as through a pharmacy benefit management uh, company at this point. Now, PBMs do a lot of good as well. I mean, there, there's, there are things that they are driving from, you know, overall trying to look at, uh, you know, cost savings and how we, how we rationalize the spend of our, our resources. So, and they have a, a tremendous amount of buying power, those things that are, that are happening. So there are things that happen in, within the PBMs that is, is positive. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I do think there's potential for just to kind of really rethink that a little bit differently, if you will. Some of our listeners, and maybe you if you haven't heard of, of Mark Cuban's cost plus drugs, right? It's pretty much just a straight 15% markup, and he's pretty transparent right on the front page of the website. And then they're like, hey, it's 15%. We add a little labor cost on top of it, and that's your price. Yeah. Is he on to something? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Um, the thing I, I do love about it, to your point, it's, it's transparent and it's a direct consumer model, right? And, and I, uh, you know, I've, my career has spanned, as I talked about retail pharmacy, I spent a little time in the, the PBM world way back in the day as well. Um, and I remember us at that time really talking about, they, at that time, I think it was called, you know, consumer directed healthcare or, you know, the idea that we're going to have the consumerization of healthcare and allow the consumer to make more choices and, and actually make decisions on their own and, be, and have more transparency in how they're making those decisions. And I, I think that's what's really interesting about this is that it really is trying to to think about that model differently. And, um, and even, you know, in my experience in being in the, the retail pharmacy world, there was times where it could have made a lot more sense to just say, we'll sell the drugs at, at cost and just add a dispensing fee and, and make sure that we're you know, making a margin on that. 
because there is a lot of really interesting things that happen in the pharmacy world from a pricing, you know, how you buy drugs, ultimately how you negotiate contracts, all those things. And uh, it's not always transparent. Now, I think more models are moving that direction. And I'm, it's exciting to see that because I do think transparency in things. And this is this goes beyond pharmacy, by the way. I think the same thing happens on the medical side as well. Like there need, you know, this is a little bit on the No Surprises Act, right? That's that's the whole idea. How do you get these surprise bills? How can you not understand what you're going to pay for medical service? And I think that uh, all of that in healthcare in general, I think if there's one thing we can do as an industry, it's bring more transparency to to the industry. Man, we've hit all the big topics here. We've hit, you know, interoperability, consumerization of healthcare, transparency. I mean, this is like a, a who's who of the uh, unobtainable in healthcare, right? Going back to this cost plus thing, though, like to some degree, isn't Cuban just moving costs around the supply chain? I mean, at the very end of the day, the, the huge drug costs are being driven by the drug manufacturer, right? Not the middleman or the PBM. Can we tackle the high costs of drugs? Do we need to go back and do something different at the manufacturer level? You know, I think there's costs that you could be looked at across the board, I think. But I do think, you know, that particular what, you know, the cost plus drugs is is looking at is really interesting. I, I do think, you know, as they progress into things, I, I think I've seen, you know, some some releases on on where they're going and their vision. You know, the idea of things like a vertical integration where possibly the manufacturer of medications and, and being able to completely, you know, go direct to consumer with with drugs at a price that is discounted really is really interesting, right? Because that's really something new. Like we talked a little bit about vert vertical integration that exists in the existing models, right? That's good health insurance. You got a PBM, maybe even have a retail pharmacy attached, but manufacturer has always been outside of that. And so things like generics are really an interesting spot because, you know, I think today 85 plus, maybe close to 90% of the drugs that are spent are generics. So that's a huge piece of the overall, you know, landscape of, of what prescriptions people are taking. So if you think about the, you know, the idea of kind of how do you manufacture those generics? How do you actually get those, those, those drugs to the appropriate consumer? That's a really interesting model. And I do think what they're doing is, is pretty unique in that regard with, you know, they have obviously the direct consumer experience. You know, they've, they've announced, I think, some stuff with with a um, Capital Blue Cross, like they're doing some interesting, I think, uh, programs, if you will, that I think could really change the the way that, you know, people often get benefits of a, of a prescription drug program. So it's clear that there's definitely a lot of opportunity for change and innovation in the PBM space. For sure. I, I think there's there's so much opportunity there. It's really an interesting one. I always stay near and dear to my heart because of, of you know, growing up in the pharmacy space. And, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, making sure people have access to the appropriate medications at, at, at the most reasonable cost is, is the most important outcome. And that's what, you know, I will say that's that's the the cause. I think that, you know, it's something like cost plus drug is really after and which is which is a noble effort for sure. It's exciting. Well, I'm glad you brought up health equity there, because that's the, the last question I wanted to get to you today before I let you go. I, I want to link together everything we've talked about. Right. We talked about data quality. We talked about EMR, we talked about transparency pharmacy benefits, consumerization, interoperability. And there's no question that one of the biggest challenges facing our country today is health equity and access, right? You know, how do we use data to improve health equity? Honestly, it's it's one of the most important questions I think any of us can can ultimately think about. And I, I mean, there are so many opportunities for us to use data and and that and ultimately to improve equity, I think you know the big thing is is thinking about where equity inequities exist 
and, and how do we ultimately you know, deliver a solution around that? And if I think about even, you know, when we, we were talking earlier about things like provider data, like just a simple ability for a, you know, a member of a health plan or anybody who's getting a benefits to go on and find a quality provider that actually is, for instance, in network that's close to them that they can ultimately go and see that can, that's accepting patients. Honestly, that that process is not easy today. I mean, it's it's very difficult. And um, I think, you know, those those things that may seem, you know, we would assume that we could solve those very simplistically are is not always the case. And um, I think this is where, though, data and and our ability to ultimately process data and prove out what we think are the appropriate hypotheses is really important. And I think that if we all work together on those type of solutions, I think that's obviously going to make that much quicker. The other thing I would say is you mentioned earlier too, the ability to partner within uh, um, ultimately our ecosystems and within, within the healthcare industry is really important because I don't think that, you know, one entity is not going to solve these issues alone. Right. Um, I think, you know, there's large organizations that are doing a lot of great stuff, Sometimes they can't solve these these issues by themselves, and and they need maybe a you know a younger company with a little more drive to, to do something different too, right? So that's that's okay. And I think that how we partner together to solve these really big challenging um, situations is the most critical. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's really um, it's interesting to think about that. I think it's always something that is as you know from our perspective of Ada, I'm sure for your perspective at Definitive, the idea of equity in healthcare continues to be um, you know one of the most important issues that we're all tackling together. Yeah, it is. And it's one that sadly, I don't think we'll be able to really fix anytime soon. He's got to take a baby step every, every single day to a little bit. Yeah. Clean yeah. It all up. Totally agree. I mean, like we talked about, I think that's the one thing that's frustrating about healthcare, but I think it's, it's also one of the opportunities we have is that we're not going to probably solve anything uh, overnight, but I think that, you know, all of us working together can improve things on an iterative basis. And um, hopefully small changes lead up to big changes. And I think, you know, we'll hopefully continue to see that. I love that. And I love ending there on a positive note. Small changes leading up to big changes. Chase, thanks again for coming on Definitively Speaking today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jess. Appreciate it. For all the listeners out there, thanks as always for joining us on Definitively Speaking, a definitive healthcare podcast. Please join me next time for a conversation with Atman Laraki, CEO of Color. Color provides the technology and infrastructure for large-scale health initiatives for everything from a population genomics program to high-throughput COVID-19 testing. Atman and I are going to have a wide-ranging conversation around health equity and what's fundamentally broken in our healthcare ecosystem and Atman's thoughts on how to fix it. You won't want to miss this. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care, please stay healthy, and remember that small changes lead to big ones.